16 following words. Oops, nope, that is the end of my slideshow. Spoiler. Oh no. He says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Maybe you come in this morning able to relate to the words that we just read from David thousands of years ago. Maybe you have been able to relate to those in the past. Maybe you know a loved one, uh, someone close to you in your life who would deeply resonate with that cry. Maybe it's an unanswered prayer in the midst of chronic pain. Maybe it's infertility. It's a family. Maybe it's a prodigal child. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's cruelty experienced from somebody else. And, and, And we don't know... How long, as he asks, we'll feel forgotten? And, 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 you know, sometimes that's the scariest part, right? Like if someone came up to us and said, hey, this will all be over. Like I'm from the future, and in one year it's going to be hard, but you're going to get through it. Or even in ten years, this will all be done. But, man, in the middle of it, we don't know. We don't know how long. And we can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, we start to wonder if there even is one. For the next three months, as a church, we're going to walk through the, the book of Exodus, not Leviticus, that'd be another one, that'd be fun, uh, and a book that brings the story of rescue, of redemption to life in a dramatic, exciting way, unlike any other book in our Bibles. But it starts bleak. It starts here with this Psalm 13 kind of language, uh, the, the chosen people of God that his supposed kind of darling children of the world are suffering in silence, crying out, how long, O Lord, as we'll see in these opening two chapters, how long? Now, at the very beginning, things actually look pretty good. Uh, if we can follow along with some blanks in your bulletins there, we're going to see Israel, number one, fruitful and filling. That's how I would hope to describe what you brought to the potluck today uh, as well. So verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. If you remember... Uh, The first book of the Bible, this is the second one, the first book, it ends with this story where Joseph has been betrayed by his own uh, brothers, sold into slavery, and sent down to Egypt. But in God's divine providence, he becomes the rescuer of his family as they come down there and find not only a famine, but forgiveness with the brother. Picks up in verse 6, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now, Exodus 1 is using very intentional language that will point us back to Genesis chapter 1. It says that they're fruitful, they're multiplying and filling. And if you've been around for a while, does that sound familiar from Genesis 1? What was God's mandate to the humans? He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That we bear the image of God and our job is to shine the light of His glory into every corner of the earth. 
Now, of course, we know that humans didn't even get through the first act of multiplying before they disobeyed, before they failed the mission and listened to the serpent's lies. They took that light, they hid it under a bushel, yes. So how, now we're faced with this crisis of how will God's intention for mankind to be fruitful and fill the earth with his glory, how is that going to, as it collides, how's it going to happen when it collides with sin and death and darkness that have entered the world? Well, God had a plan all along. He had a deliverer coming, and he he chooses one man out of this sinful world, Abraham. And he says to Abraham, and here again we hear this intentional language that we see in Exodus 1. He says to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And hear the language. I will make you extremely what? Fruitful. I'll bless you and make your offspring like the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. So this fruitful filling is going to happen through Israel. And so right here in Exodus 1, this is an explicit reference to God keeping his promise to all of humanity and Israel specifically. So it all seems rosy, right? It seems good. They're flourishing in the land of Egypt. But as you know, it's going to take a hard left turn They start out fruitful and filling, but very quickly it turns to suffering in silence. Verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. This king, they call the Pharaoh, that's his title. It's not his name, it's a title, like king or president. And and the Pharaoh, in charge of the land of of Egypt, he had this weird-looking headdress on his, you've seen it probably at Halloween Halloween parties uh, every year. Um, This snake, on the headdress... There, there is this snake, and on that, that snake was, uh, was representing, they called her Wajet, and she was their a deity, a goddess, if you will, uh, of, uh, in the shape of a cobra. And so her, her job was to indicate, as she sat on the head of the crown, if you will, of the pharaoh, was to indicate protection over their leader and to reinforce this land is Pharaoh's land. This rule is Pharaoh's rule. So what do we have here? We have a serpent leading a human ruler pushing back against God's created intent. Does this sound familiar to the beginning of Genesis? We go on, verse 9, he said to his people, Pharaoh says this, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and, and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They showed them no ruth. And made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So what we see here, Pharaoh first tries to control these people who are flourishing in his land by enslaving them. And when that doesn't work, he's going to turn to killing their firstborn males, their Hebrew male babies. He's trying to uncreate what God is creating. And just like the crafty serpent in Genesis chapter 3... Again, we see one led by a serpent dealing, he said, shrewdly, very similar language to the way it talks about the serpent in Genesis 3, with God's people. And Pharaoh here, he represents the worst of humanity. The effects of the fall are far and wide here as he's enslaving innocent people and starts to murder innocent children. And this begs the question, why would God allow this? I mean, these are God's chosen people. What are they doing in Egypt? And why are they suffering as slaves 
silently. I had a family once tell me that they, many of their family members suffered from a, the same genetic um, disease. And they were told by many people, people in the church, that the reason they were suffering was because of some sin that they had committed. That's why they were experiencing the genetic disease. I mean, does that not sound like Job's friends? Jacob brought his family here to, for, because of the famine. Now, yeah, we know that his brothers sinned against him, and that's how Joseph got to Egypt, but the family moves down because of a family, famine, not because of a specific sin that we're told of in this passage. In fact, God tells Joseph, Jacob, to go to Egypt. If you back up to the end of Genesis 46, God said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? For I will make you into a great nation there. This is God's intent. But why did God's path to flourishing have to go through suffering for his people? Here's the frustrating thing is that we're not told. The story doesn't say. But in a weird way to me that's also encouraging because we also walk a path of suffering. As we follow Jesus and, and look toward that kingdom coming affliction oppression and death. And today, as the church, we are God's covenant people. Like We are the fruition of that seed blessing through the people of Abraham. And we are now his global church from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But we're also told we're going we're gonna to go through hardship. When Paul and Barnabas are encouraging the disciples in Acts, this is the encouragement they give them. They strengthen disciples, the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them. It is necessary, it's necessary, it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of times in our lives we have these experiences to which we have no explanation for why it's happening to us. No purpose given and no protection given. That's hard. But we can take heart here from Exodus chapter 1 that we're not the only people that have experienced that, that have walked that road. And then here's the unexpected turn. Verse 10, it, the, Pharaoh says the reason we're going to enslave them is so they quit flourishing, so they quit multiplying. But the exact thing he's trying to squash is what happens. Verse 12, but the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Or in the words of Alec, I have no idea how to say his last name, Mortier, does that work? The measure of oppression became the measure of multiplication. And in spite of the oppression, through the oppression, we see God's people fruitful and filling. God wants to teach Pharaoh and the watching world, Wajet cannot protect you. This land is my land. These people are my people. I'm in control. And what we see next is God bring his promised help to, uh, from the most unexpected places and the most unexpected people. So this, this snake goddess we were talking about, Wajet, uh, she is not only known as the protector of kings, she's also known as the protector of women in childbirth. Do you see where that might be going here? Wajet was said to be the nurse and the protector of the infant god Horus. Uh, Horus was kind of the next in line to rule. But he had an evil uncle Set who did not want, he, Set wanted to take over. 
He didn't want horse to rule. He wanted to rule. Kind of a Simba Scar thing uh, going on. And so what, what happens is he's going to try to vanquish him, but Wajet, along with Horus's mom, Isis, they hide Horus. And where do they hide the next ruler of the people? In the swamps of the Nile. Does this ring any bells from the story we're about to read? God flips this myth brilliantly on its head and says, I'm going to raise up my own deliverer, protected in the swamps of the Nile, who will overthrow the one falsely claiming to be the ruler and protect my people, my women, in childbirth. And we see here another battle between a woman and a serpent. Look at verse 15 of Exodus 1. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra, the second whose name was Pua. Anybody looking for daughter names? These are just free for you. I don't think anybody else has them in our area. Uh, verse 16. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, if you do, I'm so sorry, that was not nice. Uh, give birth, <laughs> observe, Pua's going to come up to me like, hey, um, Observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? And I love, you've read the story, I love the midwives' response. The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Like, these girls are like Pez dispensers, right? We just can't, we just can't keep up, right? We'll hear from the elders if that was appropriate. Verse 20. So, God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. So, if you remember, again, back to the beginning of the first book of the Bible, we had a woman and a snake. And what happened? The woman listened to the lies of the snake instead of fearing her God. And what spread throughout the whole world? Sin and death. But here this time, you have women and a snake. But the women don't listen to the snake, do they? It says they feared God. They obeyed God. And what was the result? The opposite of death, life spreading throughout the people in the land. Now, the irony here is that we have a mighty Pharaoh. Like, he seems like the most powerful one on this scene, right? And yet, this Pharaoh goes unnamed. Like, we have no idea. That's just his title. We have no idea who this Pharaoh is. And yet, these two seemingly insignificant women, these midwives of the Hebrew people, are Shifra and Pua. And thousands and thousands of years later, we know their names. Who's important and who isn't? God gets to decide that. And brothers and sisters, let's not get caught up in the world's definitions of success and power. It's easy to do. So Pharaoh changes his tactic when he sees this isn't working. Verse 22, Pharaoh summoned all his people and said, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Now, man, we know these stories. It's so easy to blitz through this, but you slow down for a second and you imagine an executive order from our president saying, take the male children of this whole race in our country and if you see one walking around Sadatna or Kenai or crawling around or being held, you grab that child and you throw them into the Kenai River. When we look at the evil, the evil of what's going on here as a result of sin and the death that it brings, it's alarming. We see three more brave women 
outshrewding the shrewd serpent here. Moses' mom, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh's own daughter start up in chapter 2 of Exodus. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. This is actually the same exact thing that happened with me and my mom. Uh, It's crazy. There you go. Verse 3. Well, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl and uh, took it opened it and saw the child and there he was a little boy crying now here's what's crazy this is pharaoh's daughter in the house that is mandating this genocide this infanticide and what does pharaoh's daughter do when she sees this hebrew male child it says she felt sorry for him that word is she had compassion on him This is one of the hebrew boys compassion shown from the very house that's trying to kill this child and just like Wajet, the story of trying to rescue the infant Horus, we see this happening in actuality with God and Moses. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing, the, who is nursing they're in the nursing phase of their life, to nurse the boy for you? She's going to go find someone at random, right? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you your wages. Any women here, would you love to be paid to breastfeed your own child? How cool would that be? Right? So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Another irony here. That instead of the Hebrew baby boy being killed by the will of that royal house, the rescuer of the nation of Israel is going to come from within his own palace. And it's his own mom that's being paid to raise him. We see God brilliantly flipping the serpent's tactics and Pharaoh's attempts on their head. Pharaoh is essentially raising up his own demise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? So God is working through these women to defeat the snake. Wajet, Pharaoh, ultimately Satan and sin at their own game. And brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to as well. That we are the bride of Christ. And we have likely, what did we say last week at the end of Ephesians? Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but the rulers, Satan and his cronies. And we again are the underdog woman, the bride of Christ, fighting against the deeds, the lies of the serpent and those who follow that way. But how do we win? How do we overcome? Well, we, need, we, we couldn't do that ourselves, right? We needed a deliverer. And the last point we'll see this morning from this text points to just that. God prepares himself a deliverer. Now, you remember in the, in the flood story back in Genesis 6, God looks around at all the evil and he says, I've got to put a stop to this sin. I've got to start over. They're not bearing my image. They're not filling the, the world with my glory. So he wipes out mankind with a flood. But, he's, but he... Back in Genesis 3, he promised to save the world, right? The snake crusher, the deliverer to come. So how do you keep the promise while destroying everybody? Well, we see that he preserves one man, Noah and his family, through whom 
he will restart humanity and that creation mandate. And so, saved through the flood waters of death and judgment in an ark, Noah and his family come out the other side in the same language, once again, in Genesis 9. As they get off the ark, they are fruitful and multiply, filling the earth. Once again, here in Exodus, we see a similar story. It looks bleak. Right? But God says, I'm going to preserve my promise through one man. And this time, it is Moses. Now, it's cool to see the parallels here between Noah and Moses. This intentional literary design that, that both of them are selected by God to forego a watery fate. Moses in the Nile as Moses was in the flood. We both, in the word here for Moses' basket, there's only one other place in the Hebrew Old Testament where this word for basket was used. And you can guess where it was. It was the word for ark, the same word that is used for Noah's ark. Both of them saved through these wooden preservers. Both of them are chosen by God as the vehicle through whom he creates a new humanity to flourish as God had called. But then not only is it pointing back, it's also pointing forward. Because Moses is a picture of what is to come. You notice in verse 3 it said he was hidden where? In the reeds of the Nile. And, and what's coming up here in a few chapters is the people of God are going to march through what? We often translate it Red Sea. Probably a better translation. The word there is actually reeds. So the Sea of Reeds or the Reed Sea. And Moses here serves as a mini picture of the deliverance of God of his firstborn son, he calls Israel, through the waters of death and judgment, and out the other side, what is going to be born? A new people to show the world how to walk in the light of God's glory. So what we see here is before Moses is ready to do this rescuing, he needs to learn a little bit. He needs to grow up a little bit. Look at verse 11. Oh, there's your, red, there's your sea of reeds. <clears throat> Years later... After Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking, around, uh, looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So apparently there was someone around when he did that. Moses became angry and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So here, what I think we see is Moses trying to work out his identity as deliverer of Israel, but in his own way, in his own timing. And this is your plan, Moses? You're going to put on the justice boy cape and start whacking slave drivers one at a time? And you see, the plan totally backfires, right? And this is what happens. He's using Egypt's tools to fight against Egypt. That's not going to work. Dr. King once said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. A boy could preach. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And let's be careful. We think, I know I could speak for myself. There are times when I think I know how to make things right. 
And I do things in my own time, in my own way, but I have to be careful and ask myself, am I using the serpent's tools to defeat the serpent? I mean, how often do I catch myself hypocritically, like I'm watching somebody just show someone else contempt and devalue them, and I'm starting to be like, that person's such a, can you imagine, they're such a, and I'm like, I'm doing, I'm showing contempt to the person I'm mad about showing someone else contempt, right? Like you see the hypocrisy. We can only use God's tools, not the serpent's. So Pharaoh is mad at Moses, and he runs. He flees to the land they call Midian. We don't know for sure, but very likely it's down here uh, south, southeast of the uh, Sinai Peninsula there. And, and the story picks up in verse 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses, with his savior complex, came to their rescue and watered the flock. He protects them from these, this, this, these gangster shepherds that are, that are giving her a hard time at the well. Justice boy is still in action, but we start, we're going to start to see God redeem that tendency and use it for good. Verse 18, when they returned to their father, Rule, he, he asked, why have you come back so quickly? How would you get those things watered so quick? They answered, there was this Egyptian hunk down at the well, Dad. He rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Rule says, interesting. So where is he? He asked his daughters. When did you, why did you leave this man behind? Sounds like great husband material to me. Invite that boy to dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son, whom he named Gershom. For he said, and I hear Moses, maybe for the first time, having been raised in the palace, identify with his people. I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. He and Midian, as his people, in Egypt. So this is actually how Jill and I met as well. I was at a watering hole. These guys causing you trouble? That's right. (laughs) I love how the Lord goes with Moses to Midian. He's here. And despite Moses' foolishness, his mistakes, his failed attempts at rescuing and giving life through actually taking life, God hasn't abandoned him, and he provides Moses here a home, a family, safety in Midian. God is working behind the scenes. See, Moses had to learn some things. He had to learn trust and obedience, and as you know the story, it's going to take a while, but his tender, well-meaning heart had to learn God's time and God's way, and isn't it sweet of the Lord of how patient he is with us, that, that our God is patient to teach us everything his grace requires of us it's also going to provide everything he asks of he will also be the source from which we can draw to do that what an encouragement that my God works not because of me but in spite of me and then my God is being patient with me my God is being kind with me he knows where he's taking me and by his grace alone will I get there so what do we do with this story like how does this help us today in the midst of our own suffering Well, we all have experiences in our life, now, in the past, definitely coming in the future, where they don't have an easy explanation that I can't say. We need to be careful. Like, this is why God did this. Let's slow our roll to speak for God. But we ask, why, God? Why are you allowing me or my loved one to suffer like this? It's the broken marriage. It's the nightmare job. It's the cancer as we, we walk the road with our dear Armstrong family. It's a marathon. How long, Lord? How long will it feel like you've forgotten us? 
Three things I see in a grace note here at the end of the story that we can hold on to this morning. Number one, God hears our suffering. He hears it. Look at how Exodus 2 ends. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out. They cried out. It's key in this story. And their cry for help because of the difficult language ascended to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. Listen, sometimes we need to be reminded that our cries do not fall on deaf ears. It can feel like it, can it? It feels like he's distant, that he's not listening. Certainly not doing anything about it. Now you might say, but okay, great. God he- other people can hear my suffering, but is God going to actually do something about it? Is there hope on the other side of this suffering? The second thing we see here is that God promised to end this suffering. Verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. What covenant was that? We track with the big story. He's promised to make them a great nation, put them in the promised land, and then from that nation, he is going to fill the earth with the light of his glory. But man, it feels far from that right now, doesn't it? I mean, they're over here in Egypt suffering. They say, how are we going to get to Canaan and this land of milk and honey blessing? What's, what's crazy about this is all the way back in Genesis 15, generations prior, God said, he called his shot. He said all of this was coming. Look at his, his, the granddaddy Abraham. He has this conversation with him. The Lord said to Abraham, know this for, for certain. You can bank on this. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. It's turned out to be Egypt. And will be enslaved and oppressed. Here they are, just like God said would happen. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. Not only are you going to be freed, you're going to have some, some bling with you. In the fourth generation, they will return here. Abraham was in, in Canaan at the time. So they're going to come back to Canaan. So God promised all this to come. Suffering and deliverance, they would get back to the land, which is, isn't it, let's be honest, it's hard to understand here why God would choose for them to go through suffering. Like, why did they have to go down to Egypt at all? They were already in Canaan. Just stay there, right? There's also a reassurance here that he's in control of this situation. That Pharaoh didn't catch God off guard. He's certainly not thwarting his plans. And the cool thing is here, we see 400 years, time's up. It's been 400 years. It feels like the darkest hour right now. And if we know the story, the next couple chapters, it's just going to get worse. But they say the darkest hour is before what? The dawn. And we're about to see the dawn of God's redeeming grace. 400 years, I feel like a long time. But they are about to see his promise end their suffering. And there will not be an Egyptian driving a whip into their backs very, very soon. Brothers and sisters... And we've been given the same promise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for a, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And maybe you right now are going, man, this, this, this thing feels anything but light and momentary. But he says, chin up, son, daughter. Gaze into the future of eternity. God's promise to us is that we will also suffer too. It's necessary 
Peter, Paul and Barnabas said to go through these sufferings. But God promises to end it one day. How is he going to do that? That points to the third, last thing we see in the text. God knows our suffering. He knows it. God saw the Israelites, and this is how the chapter ends, and God knew. It just says, and God knew. God knew what? Like, it doesn't seem like a, a full sentence, right? God knew. What's he saying there? That word knew. That's the same word that back in Genesis 4, when Adam sleeps, has sex with his wife, Eve. That's the, he says, Adam knew his wife. It's a more children's friendly way to say it. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean he knows facts or information about Eve. He comes to know her intimately in relation. And this is the same word here. It doesn't mean that God is just aware of their suffering, that God has the information that his people are suffering. It means that he is intimately with them in the suffering. Not just information, relation. He's present. And again, look at the promise that he made back to to Jacob. Back in, 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 we read this earlier, Genesis 46. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? For I will make you into a great nation there. I have great plans for you. But then look at the promise. I will go down with you. And I will also bring you back. Yeah, you're going to go through a long, hard period of suffering. But you will not be alone. I will enter into that suffering with you. And this points us to the true and better Moses. You see, between our Testaments and our Bible, there's just one page, and it goes from Malachi to Matthew. But there was actually, there were 400 years of silence. And once again, God's chosen people endure 400 years of darkness where their cries to God are unanswered. No prophet, no word from God at all. And it looks like the darkest hour with the Roman Empire's oppression, another foreign army controlling them. But once again, the darkest hour is right before the dawn of redeeming grace. That our God knew the suffering of his people and he came down as the deliverer himself. Moses 2.0. And the ultimate promise came from the ultimate unexpected person and place. And you see the parallels here. right? Just like with Pharaoh, with King Herod, we we see a, a murderous king trying to wipe out all the Hebrew male babies. We see another Egyptian flight to and from Egypt and a people who reject their own deliverer that has come to save them. Just like in Israel, excuse me, just like in Egypt, we find rescue through suffering. That God himself came down to suffer with us and to suffer for us. Remember, just like with Pharaoh, when he's trying to enslave the people, and he's trying to kill the babies, and it just leads to more flourishing, more being fruitful and filling, we see here the men, what they intended for evil, to kill Christ and hang him on a cross, ends up with the ultimate good for all of mankind's multiplying and fruitful filling. And finally, after thousands of years... God's original creation mandate begins to move forward in Christ. And he sends his followers after the resurrection out to be fruitful and to fill. What does he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. My church, my bride, taking the light of the better Moses to the ends 
of the earth. And we still live in, in Egypt, in, in a sense, right? A broken, fallen world, bond, in bondage to sin. But we're promised that it's only a matter of time until the ultimate dawn breaks into this dark hour. God's people in God's land forever. Look at the last two book chapters of the, our Bibles, and it paints a picture where Jesus will be here with us, and there'll be no more slavery, only freedom. No more darkness, only light, as Jesus rules his people into flourishing, being fruitful and filling forever and ever. Amen. Now, that didn't leave us with any easy answers for why God's people suffer today. Like, we know, of course, we've done, I mean, sin and death, like, come as, uh, death comes as a wage of sin. Like, we know a lot of this has been brought on by ourselves. And yet, there are many experiences, without explanation, we say, I don't know why God even allowed sin to be able to enter the world. I don't, even, I don't understand why the path to life has to be through death, why the path to joy has to be through suffering, why the path to victory has to be through defeat. But no, hear from this story that our God has not called us into anything that he wasn't willing to take on himself. That our God suffered for us and he suffered with us on the cross. Sometimes it feels like forever where we can't even see a light at the end of the tunnel. They were in Egypt for 400 years. Like think about that, 400 years. How many generations came and went? Is this the day? Is this the year? Is this the decade? Is this even the century that our people will know freedom? But just like those seemingly unimportant midwives, look at me. God knows your name. He sees you. He hears you. He remembers his promises to you. And he knows. He is intimately familiar and suffering with you and suffered for you so that all his promises will become yes and amen in Jesus. We'd like to end in prayer together. What I wanted to do today is loop back to Psalm 13. So if you'd stand up with me. In this psalm, we, we see God, we, we, see, we see it starting with David crying out to his God. He pleads to him from an honest place. And guys, that's where we have to start. And we have to be able to take our true heart, our doubts, our frustrations, our fears, all of it to the Lord and cry out to him. But then we see at the end of this short little psalm, he clings to the promises of his God. He clings to them, not by feelings, not by, by his circumstance, by sight, but by faith. And this is our call too, that we cry out to God for help. And then we cling to the promises that he's given to us in Christ. So I just want us to read this together as a prayer. And think about your situation or the situation of your loved one. And let's cry out to our God together and then cling to those promises. Read this with me out loud. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him. And my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But then we cling. Let's cling to this promise. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. 
I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Amen.